Drumming. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and today I'm talking with Clint DeGannon. Clint has had a long and busy New York-based career, highlighted by sessions and tours with Paul Schaefer, Hiram Bullock, Blood, Sweat and & Tears, and many others. He also has an extensive Broadway resume, having originated the drum books for four musicals, including the Grammy-winning hit Hairspray. His most recent career highlight was playing on the soundtrack for Steven Spielberg's adaptation of West Side Story. We would appreciate your support on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers, all useful and actionable lessons for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links for both on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. While you're there, you can learn more about this episode and check out our archive of over 300 episodes. Also, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, however you listen, please leave us a rating and review. This helps new listeners find us. Our Patreon content now features Will Kennedy discussing the recording of his song Samaritan, which he composed for the new Yellow Jackets record. We've also got lots of other drummers on that Patreon series, including Ash Sohn and Eric Slick, talking about specific songs they've tracked drums for and all the technical and creative aspects of those recording processes. There's also a video by me illustrating my favorite warm-up routine, which I've found to be really useful and effective over the years. You can get access to this and the rest of our Patreon content for as little as $1 a month, so check that out. We'd really appreciate your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash working drummer. So Clint has been an established New York drummer for decades now and has managed to become fairly indispensable to artists, producers, and music directors at the top of the food chain in multiple worlds, from Broadway to session work to touring across multiple genres. So let's get to it all with Clint DeGannon. Shop right now, right? Yeah, how'd you know that? Well, you mentioned it when we were texting oh. and, and trying to like. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Get this I haven't scheduled. mentioned it to many people. There's <laughs> a there's a uh, a true story uh, about a woman from Long Island who invented a squeeze mop. <laughs> and uh, this is the this be- is the show you're working on. Well, it it was it became a movie with starring Jennifer Lawrence, Robert De Niro, and. Uh, Bradley Cooper. It's not a small story. It's kind of a huge story, but that when you pare it down to that, it sounds funny. But it's a it's a story of uh, of a sort of triumph by uh, 
in a major, you know, by a major underdog right. who was hammered over and over and told that she couldn't do it. So she wound up inventing a whole lot of different things. But the story is 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 uh, is a good one, and the music is a good one. And, and a lot of people have seen the movie. It wasn't a huge success. What was the What was the movie called? Joy, as is the show. Okay. I, I didn't know about it. My significant other knew about it and liked the movie. I think the people who have seen it liked it, but it didn't, it didn't you know. But it's interesting. And it was, uh, uh, so, listen, man, I, if, I, if, I'm, if I can tell you one thing about doing shows, it's that you never freaking know. Yeah. <laughs> when I was, uh, when I was, out in Seattle breaking in a show a guy who spoke like a frog who was wearing a dress and playing a mother to a fat girl and it was an interracial thing and it was whatever it was based on a story based on a movie from John Waters huh. I'm like this is anything but mainstream right turned out to be one of the longest running shows in the in the history of shows uh, hairspray right you never freaking know man so and i'm not going to be the judge also when i did beautiful was it was the second longest running show i had ever done and i thought okay carol king beautiful songs yeah touching story this is going to be like for westchester and long island you know it's going to get a, a female contingency, which, you know, largely the audience was at least two to one, maybe three to one, maybe four to one. I don't know. Right. Women, women love the show, but I thought this is going to run for six months mm -hmm. because it's just too specific. And it ran for five and a half years. Yeah. Yeah. You just don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, uh, you know, Hamilton might be the best example of that. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah just you you look at that show on paper and it's like the longest shot uh but it you know just so well done so uh brilliantly conceived and executed um you know. yeah but but the x factor here bro is is all that said there are a lot of shows that 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 do that mm -hmm. and they don't find an audience mm -hmm. that's th that that's the x factor the x factor is like this 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 fusion of a, something created that catches on. Right. Now, you can have something created that catches on, and you can have a whole lot of people scratching their head and going, how, how, how did that happen? Uh, I mean, a feel-good story might, you know, to us be kind of fluffy, like, let's say, Mamma Mia. Right. What did that run for, like, 15 years or yeah, something? Yeah, at least. But, but uh, who would have thought? Yeah. That, that, uh, you, know, you can't say that's amazing theater. But for some reason, you know, it had, it had all the ingredients to, to bring in a... Right. Anyway, right. So you never at, know. Like, as a drummer, you get called in to uh, do one of these workshops... And like you yeah. said, you you never know. Like this could be like you just do the workshop and it goes absolutely nowhere, or which most of them do. By right. the way, actually, <laughs> you know, the truth is that most shows go absolutely nowhere. Right. Even if they even if they're lucky enough to make it to Broadway, and, and, and at that point, I think somebody told me at some point, very roughly, 
80% of shows are catastrophes <laughs> that actually get to the point where they can get a theater, which right. is sometimes that's 10 years or more in the making. Wow. Of fledgling around and developing a show and trying to get investors and rewriting and, and recasting. And, you know, it's a long, long, long uh, walk for most of these things. And they usually don't get it off the ground. So you can do a lot of things. Even before their workshops, they have these things called labs or readings mm -hmm. that are often like, I don't know, five days. I don't remember the specifics. But these, you know, workshops can be uh, month-long kind of things. And that means that they've uh they've achieved uh uh, uh they've gotten some money right there's, there's a proof money, of concept there yeah there's where somebody is interested right somebody who has power in this particular case there's a lot of powerful people behind it. has a has what they would call i think what they you know it's a positive way of spinning it but i i actually feel that in this particular case that's that that this will move and mm -hmm. it's going to be it's going to be in the at the, at the uh, what is it the St. George Theater or something like that in South in New Brunswick, New Jersey. It's like a a regional theater. Right. And then, then it will run in December. And my guess is that uh, it will ultimately they'll the, the powers that be will be able to move this when a theater becomes open in a year or more. Right, right. Of course that it, nothing could happen. But it, and that's often the case. But I think in this particular case, it it will actually happen. Yeah. So as the yeah. drummer for the workshop, I mean, you've you've originated several shows and several drum books. And Almost all of them. Almost all the ones that I've done, I've originated. Yeah. Right. So like when when you are the drummer on the workshop, is it a foregone conclusion that if and when that show? goes to a theater and, and actually gets put up that you are going to do the show or are you kind of done with it after the workshop? Is it up to you? How does that go? Uh, yeah. Uh, so, well, lots of things can happen between a workshop and uh, when they finally get a theater. Um, if they wanted me to do it, and I would hope they would, if they offered it to me, I may be doing something else. Right. Uh, and that that has happened before, where I've done a workshop for something or done rehearsals for something, and then I, I was involved in something else and couldn't do it. Um, so that, or you know, they could say, you know what, we, we're very unhappy with this guy's play. <laughs> we don't like the way he looks. Whatever. I don't know. You know, I mean, it's it's no. So they don't they don't owe me anything. Is there, there are there's something called the right of first refusal. Right. Which is very sketchy, really, but uh, ultimately is supposed to give somebody some identity with the product uh, at a certain point, and then they might have to uh, buy you out if they didn't want you to do it. But, uh, but I mean, I, I, I wouldn't think that would happen. Right, right. Uh, but, I, but there have been, uh, not with me, but there have been instances where somebody didn't work out. And by the way, whether you do a workshop or not, if you were to go to Broadway with a show, uh, you have to do eight services or rehearsals. They have eight services to decide whether they want to actually keep you. Hmm. Okay. So originating a book or writing a book or all the various things that people wave the flag about doing 
uh, when it comes to this stuff really has nothing to do, in our case, with, you know, belonging right. to a show. Right. It does if you're a, a, a director. It does if you're, uh, lately, uh, if you're an actor. There's, uh, like, Hamilton, they had a thing where they went through where the actors claimed that they had uh, should be paid something, I think, ongoing, some sort of point or percentage of something. Hmm. But that won't happen with us. Right, right. It, very, very, very rarely. So for you, like, historically, uh, has, has your calculus been or has your default been uh, – like if I get offered this show, I'm gonna do it. Is is Plan A for you? Uh, just you know, doing a run of a Broadway show and and everything else is sort of secondary. That's an excellent question. This has been a, a struggle for me in my life, actually. I would imagine because, because it like doing a show just like takes up you know six nights a week and kind of your entire bandwidth and doesn't leave a lot of room for. Much else. Well, what you're about to do certainly fits that description, because you are, uh, you know, the the rules of subbing when you're out on the road are, and I I haven't done, I did one thing like that when I was in my early twenties, but the, it's almost impossible. So that said, when you have a show, um, and it's up and running, and your past previews and your past opening and things are settling down a little bit. You have, a, there's a very re- liberal subbing policy. Mm-hmm. You can also take off, you know, you could take leaves of absence. You could go on a tour. You could do a whole bunch of things. But uh, does it involve a commitment? Sure. I'm at a point in my life, having done 13 shows, two of them took maybe a total of 12 years. Wow. Of the 25 years or so that I've done them. Yeah. Um, so I guess half of that time was spent with two shows. Right. I was in and out a lot. And my subs were very, very happy. <laughs> when I came to New York, my goal was really to be sitting in the studio all the time. Right. And, and we romanticized that a little bit. Right? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So, and, and as that began to wane, studio work began to wane. It was a very real thing. And I, 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 when I came in, I was do I was playing jingles and and sessions and things like that, but it was already majorly on the down down downfall. So the the drum machine had already made its way into the work, and uh, we saw we saw the the the, the uh, jingle business sort of uh, what's the word? It was kind of like there were major jingle companies and then everybody who had sequencers became a jingle company. And then, so anyway, when that went away in New York, one of the more obvious ways one could find uh, a way to work every day was to play shows. And I know a number of people who sort of transitioned from studio work to Broadway uh, at, now, everybody, including me, is a freelancer, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff. I wind up talking about this because I've done a bunch of shows, but I've done a whole lot of other work, and I'd love to talk about that. No, we're going to get to it for sure. Yeah. But, I, I, but, but all that said, uh, you know, back in the day, in the 70s, in the 80s, you know, let's say, you know, uh, 
let's take some uh, uh, Steve Gadd or, or somebody who would be working all the time. I just in interviewed Chris Parker. Chris is a perfect example and, yeah. a, and, a, and a dear friend. Uh, and Chris was constantly working in the studios. And so they would, you know, and so stuff was one example where the two of those, two of them would get together at night. They would do gigs at night. They would do little tours. They'd come back. They'd play sessions. There's, there's, it's a, it's a very similar template unless you're going to bury yourself in, in that, in the, in the, in, in the pit. It's a similar template. You know, nobody, there's nothing romantic about playing a 60 second tampon spot. (laughs) Yet, you know, we would be very happy but nobody said, hey, I'm, the, I'm a drummer who plays, I'm a jingle drummer. Nobody identified themselves that way. Right, right. And yet, if you were to look at the cake and the icing, a lot of the cake was these sessions, which were, you know, I mean, you, they're memorable in that you have great musicians who are together and they're playing them. And I still do those sessions and I, and I love them. Right. But, and, and you can have great people playing together underneath the stage yeah. and playing great, great music. And uh, God bless, you know, but there's the cake and there's the icing, right? Mm-hmm. And so our careers, are the patchwork of our careers are made up of, of all of these various things. I had to write them down when I would <laughs> talk to you because honestly... We go through our days and we get, we get, you know, different projects and different recording projects, different live projects. And I, when somebody says, so what are you doing now? It's like the worst question because right. I, can't, I can't freaking remember unless I look. So I, I, I looked at my calendar and I wrote these things down. So I would have something <laughs> intelligent <laughs> or semi-intelligent to say to you. But anyway, my point being that, that with, with regard to shows, they sort of took over. Uh, a, a spot in New York where people could could uh, have work regularly, where they would make money, and there'd be some back-end money, too. Mm-hmm. And they were tremendously, you know, uh, on a per-session basis. It wasn't tremendously profitable. The, 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 the metric was, we're going to do them all week. We're going to do them week after week, mm-hmm. and there's going to be money, because it's it's like this, and that's the same thing with Broadway, right? You know, if you spent all of that time learning, uh, ain't too proud, and you went in once or twice, you would have done a, a more work than you should have for <laughs> you know the pay you were going to get for the two two performances, right? Right. Over the long haul, you know, day after day, you'll make money. Right. Right. So it's, I, I like your, your cake versus icing analogy. And, and you're saying that for a long time, you know, session work, uh, even the, uh, you know, less glamorous sort of, uh, most of it was less glamorous. That's right. The, that's the thing. Right. Almost, the jingle all, almost all of us in the, in the scheme. Of, I mean, you'd had your record dates and everybody loves to look at the record dates. Right. right? But that's, you know, the record business is essentially over. I mean, for all intents and purposes. Yeah. I mean, so all of the people you're talking about, like the luminaries that we talk about are luminaries because of the work that actually existed then. The record business celebrated great musicianship. That 
basically doesn't happen anymore. Right. Now we coexist with these people. Yeah. But I, I saw an interview with uh with uh what's his name Beato Rick Beato. Oh yeah yeah. And I think it was uh, uh, Jeff Jeff uh, Berlin. Uh, the bass player, great bass player. Mm-hmm. And he said, if Jimi Hendrix came out now, nobody would know who he was. Yeah. It's so fragmented. Like the, the music business and, and the recording industry is extremely fragmented. And, and it's a double-edged sword because it means that a lot of people can, um, you know, there's, there's, there's no gatekeepers anymore. So, so more people have access. But the, the trade-off is that your audience is going to be smaller. Right. The, right. the audience at large is completely fragmented. So if you can find your little slice of it, you can do your thing. Yes. Um, but it looks very different than it did. Right. Uh, right. And, and, and I find it interesting because <clears throat> great drummers like uh, Chris and Steve, who are out there and played on all of these amazing records. And and we, you know, their household names and in large part because of what that forum was no, i mean this is not to diminish the absolute greatness of those drummers i'm just saying that the 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 uh the the the, the framework with which in which they worked was different was wildly different right and it is now right. wildly different and we're we're all coexisting together right right so you know the uh, you know guys who were a little younger uh, uh, uh entered into a very different framework and i watched that business sort of Change in New York, you know the whole jingle thing. Changed now. Here I am in New York. I'm, you know, I'm taking whatever gigs as we all do in whatever city we're in, and I'm, you know, uh, now there now that looks like I'm not going to be making a living playing jingles and whatnot. And I I knew of a couple guys who were playing shows, and I was curious about it because it was a it was an interesting prospect potentially though it's pretty foreign mm-hmm. uh, and a little scary to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and, and, and I sort of, you know, every time I would come off the road, I was going out on the road with sort of what, what became smooth jazz artists. There was mm-hmm. you know, Bob James and Michael Franks and Warren Hill and, uh, and, and Chuck Loeb. And, uh, and, and then I come back in town and, you know, I would pick up whatever gigs I could but it wasn't like anything was actually waiting for me. And this is, the, you know, you're in and out, you're in and out. Some people teach. I wasn't teaching. Uh, 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 so anyway, that's how that came to be. So, but there, there have been junctures, which there would be for anybody, no matter what commitment they made, where they would have to say no to something else. Yeah. And those times where I said no to, to stuff that musically I thought was pretty great, uh, still stay with me. Yeah. You know? Now I'm at a point in my life where I don't have to do that. And uh, this show sort of, if it becomes a show, whatever it is now, I'm grateful for it. I, I enjoy it. If, if it happens, great. If it doesn't happen, that's okay too. I've right. done a, I've done a lot of these things. And Yeah, and uh, if this one doesn't happen, you know, I, I have a feeling we're staying busy no matter what. I'm 
I'm curious about how you thought about um, entering the the Broadway world and the musical world in terms of um, your musical fulfillment as a performer, because you talked about how we romanticize session work. Um, yes, but uh, you know, especially in the jingle world, it wasn't always fantastic. It was, just, <laughs> you know, it was very was work was 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 work, right? And yeah. you were performing like at a high level with high level musicians, but the music yes. itself, the project itself, y- yes, you know, sort of left something to be desired. Yes. Um, so, what were your thoughts and feelings in terms of, you know, your musical and creative fulfillment? Well, I mean, uh, depending on what the job was I was doing or or specifically with regard to theater yeah with regard to theater because like you're coming out of this jingle world where you know you weren't always very creatively fulfilled you were making a living um yeah I would say uh to just to to, to be clear to be clear I I uh my work doing jingles was was tangential I I had some and I would work for you know but I I would not say I was making my living primarily from that I was making my living playing live gigs, mm-hmm. uh, and I always wanted to play live gigs. And I was, always, you know, in college and before I was playing jazz or contemporary jazz or or fusion or whatever. And and so the progression into those gigs that I was doing on the road, and then ultimately that that you know the Michael Franks, uh, you know Bob James thing led to a, a number of years playing with the great Hiram Bullock. Right, right. You were with amazing him for a guitar long time. Player. We lived them for a long time, recorded a lot, toured a lot. Uh, we had a great trio with Will Lee and, and Hiram and me, and we, we all sang, and, it, and that was extremely fulfilling. And while that was going on, you know, we'd go out, then we'd come back, and there'd be like, you know, a date uh, uh, every few weeks, every month, whatever it was, uh, in between the tours. And I sort of fell into, actually, it was through John Miller, mm. I think. And uh, I was doing some gig that he had hired me for, was not a show. And, you know, we started talking. He said, would you, you know, is this something that interests you? <coughs> and I said, yes. And he said, why would you want to do this? And I, I explained exactly the same thing. I, I'd go out of town. I'd do these tours. i come back in. I'm sort of grabbing whatever comes my way. But it's, a, it's you know, there's... And then I thought, let me give this a shot. And at that time, I think he recommended me for some off-Broadway show, which went to Broadway later, called Violet. And also, um, I I had done a a, a kind of a fluky show a long, long, long time ago, lasted a couple. I had a taste of it. (laughs) I had a taste of it. So I have classical training. Mm -hmm. And... um, I studied with two of the guys in the New York Philharmonic back oh, wow. in the day, Buster Bailey and Roland Koloff. They're, neither one of them are with us now, but uh, playing in orchestras and playing in bands and following conductors and doing all that was part of my training, and I enjoyed it. Uh, and so it wasn't it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't terribly hard for me to embrace that because uh, you know where they call Broadway bands, orchestras. And right. the reason for that is because it's still predicated on the idea that you're following some, as much as you, you know, you're doing a show that is like, I would imagine 98% click, you yes. know, 
and and so it's a question of triggering it. And I, I don't know who does it, but anyway. Uh, so you know, like anything, uh, some 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 things are more fun to play. Some things are more fun to listen to. Um. As a drummer, you're executing, you're thinking about execution, you're thinking about, you know, musicality, precision, um, you know, how is this blending, you know, what can I do to make this better? Those are not, you're not judging the music at that point, you know, you're, right. you're, you're, you're part of it. I do gigs with orchestras, uh, there's New York Pops, I play with them sometimes at Carnegie Hall, I'm very grateful to be doing that. I've done that with film, uh, West Side Story, the Spielberg thing. I right. did that, and that was you know with the New York Phil and, and Gustavo Dudamel and all that. And and it's about blending and precision. That studio work meets show with you know with some of those things. Right. I was uh, going to say like the the theater world um, is really sort of a, a great blend of uh, sort of just the live gig ethos with. Um, session work because it uh, I mean it's obviously live it's happening in the moment in front of an audience um, and you're playing you know with other live musicians um, but in most shows you know you have to hit very specific targets the way you do in the studio um, especially for something as tightly controlled as a jingle um, and uh you know, uh, that performance doesn't live forever in the same way a recording does, but it, it does live a long time by virtue of the fact that you do it over and over and over. <laughs> right. So it's not, yeah. it's not like a jazz gig where it's like, it's this moment, this night, this performance, and it's That's gone. Right. It's That's like, right. it's a living, breathing thing that you live with for a long time. And also, uh, yeah, yeah, your observation there, I, I often, feel that way that it's more like a recording session than it is a, a performance because you're playing for performers right i mean in so much as that you're playing for performers and it's a performance you're a performer but it doesn't feel that way when you have absolutely no connection uh, direct connection with the audience. Right. And that's a, so, that's a great point because like in, in a musical, you're, you're like, you're laying down a backing track for what's happening on stage. More or less a live backing track. That's, yes. That's, that's what more it, or less. Yeah. Yes. So that's, that's where the right. recording ethos comes in. The other thing right. I love about it. Um, and Q has talked a lot about this is that, um, like you're not just when you're doing a show, you're not just making music anymore. Now, like now you're telling a story and like you said, no matter what the music really consists of, um, you, you sort of, you, you don't judge the music. You put that aside in service to like, how, how can I help tell this story with my drumming? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a very sort of evolved global way of looking at it. I, <laughs> and, and I, uh, you know, I, I think Q is a, is a, is a fine musician and a great drummer. So, and, uh, you know, I, res I respect his perception of that. Um, I, I, I don't necessarily share that in that, um, uh, you could say that if you're playing an opera, you're telling your story. You could say that uh, if you're 
playing in the ballet, you're helping to tell a story. But at the end of the day, we're musicians and the emotion that we feel playing is not necessarily connected in my mind. This is my own perception. Mm -hmm. We're playing music. Mm -hmm. And that music has to speak for itself. It has to be... Uh, if you want, though, I mean, if you want to, if, if it's moving you somehow, God bless. Yeah. You know, God bless. I mean, uh, but uh, that is the global picture is that there is a story being told. Right. 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 Now, at the end of the day, I, I'm, yes, my, my job is to play this gig and here are the parameters for the gig. You know, the guy uh, who, who is pulling the lever you know, at, at, at point X for the lights is probably not necessarily connected to the story, but he's doing his job and it needs to be done well. Right. 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 So, uh, uh, but you know, however it gets you there, however you get there, this is your gig, right? This is your gig. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, you bring, you bring yourself to it and now he inherited something and I know he was extremely respectful of what, happened before him in in terms of you know what uh clayton had played and right and uh i understand that and i haven't been in that position as much uh, and a, a sub might be in that position a lot mm -hmm. uh, is in that position a lot and so i have tremendous respect for for, for subs and uh but uh yeah uh, but but you you know you're yes underneath this and if you're doing a show where you're on the stage, and I've done a few of those, there is more of a sense of being part of a performance. And I think it ain't too proud. Don't you come out on the stage? At yeah, points? like for the for the finale, basically the band is on stage. It feels a little different it when does. you're on the stage. You know, it just does. Yeah. So I, you know, anyway, we frame this how we frame it. You know, it's. It's, I, I, I speak kind of uh, adamantly when I, when I have to do some sort of master class or something like that where I'm talking to kids who want to play shows. And I really worry about it. <laughs> uh, I, I really do. I really do. I, 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 I worry about it because uh, now I, I have respect for musicians doing great jobs no matter what they're doing. But... These shows, uh, they, they're, they're predicated, let's say, Ain't Too Proud. Ain't Too Proud is a good example, or, or Hairspray, or, you know, whatever. You, you, you have to be, you have to have an, a connection, uh, even if you go to it, with what this music actually is. And you have to know how to play it. You're not going to know how to play it uh, if you've never played music like this, you know, at gigs, Right. You have no training. So by the time it all filters down, it's a filter after a filter after a filter after a filter. By the time you get a hold of it and right. you're playing whatever, whatever song you're playing, it's almost what it was sometimes. Yeah. And that's the best you can say about it. Now, you bring yourself to it, and, but you have to have an awareness of what of, – of, of, of what it really is as music. And I think that people who go to school for theater and theater drumming, I think it's some sad shit. I'm telling you right now. I do. I mean, good. prepare yourself because that might be something you want to do. But that's, that's, 
for actors, it's a whole different animal, right? right? This is, you know, this is, but for us, this is filtered down. So you you want to play great, and sometimes you sometimes you can really lay in, but you have to know what 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 that means. Do, does that make any sense? Totally. You have to know what the music really is. It's such a great it's it. such a great point because I think um, musical theater um, musicianship, especially from a drumming or percussion standpoint, used to be a much more specialized thing that you could uh, sort of prepare for more. In a, in a rarefied college environment, right? It's like, here's the curriculum, here are the skills you need. They have a lot in common with classical. Um, and, uh, you know, the, um, it, was, it was less derived from the whole world of pop music. And I think in the last uh, couple of decades, Broadway and the musical theater world has increasingly drawn its uh, content from pop music um so if you're not versed and experienced in playing that kind of music out in the world where it's played because it's brought it's brought into the broadway world from out there in the real world where the artists are doing it so if you don't have at least some experience uh you know out playing real gigs playing that music then it's hard for you to to bring that into the theater Exactly, exactly. And, and um, what I'm noticing also is that there, you know, there are some really fine drummers now that are playing shows. Yeah. Um, and then there were always, there were always some, but there were, there were you know, that, uh, it's, it's, it, and, and, and let's say string players and horn players, a lot of times they were just, this was a service for them. So it was just, they would go from, you know, playing a concert to playing a show it was like all, you know, one big umbrella. But uh, more and more, you know, great players are, are getting involved. And that's a good thing. Like, I, I, I went and heard uh, MJ. And right. they, sound, they sounded phenomenal. Yeah. I was backstage watching. They were, you know, Gene Lake was playing drums. He's a great drummer. The, the whole band sounded fantastic. Right. So, anyway. It's, it's, so yes, you're right. I mean, it's getting more specialized, and you have to bring a certain you have to bring a certain authenticity to it. So, so from that standpoint, you know, play play and learn as many different kinds of styles you can, and and do it from above above the stage floor, not below. Right. it. Right, and and because of that, I think more musicians, um, drummers especially are being brought into the musical theater world, into the Broadway world from outside of it. Um, a lot of, show- a lot of yeah, there's a lot of reasons for that. There's, there's a lot, there's so, but just the musical reasons you were talking about, like there, you know, yeah. there, there are a group of musicians who are well established in the Broadway world and have a long resume of, of doing lots of shows. But when a show comes along, that is like a highly specialized, uh, you know, pop style, then sometimes musicians who are versed in that style, who have never played a Broadway show, but have been playing this music a lot are brought in because it's like this, this guy knows this music. He doesn't yeah, have the but, Broadway but, resume, uh, but well, yeah, that, that there's some, there's some truth to that, but I, I want to dispel the myth that, uh, that by virtue of the fact that you have a number of shows on your resume, you are somehow less than. 
Oh, no, I wasn't suggesting that at all. Like, okay, because when you say, you know, I mean, some of the people you're talking about are some of the greatest drummers that are, uh, uh, that are in New York. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, those are, um, I, but I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I, know, I, I know your point. The thing is that there's experience playing a show. Uh, I, I don't. I don't want to sound like I'm contradicting myself because I'm. Su- I'm suggesting that all of these things are super important. Yeah. So you fuse them together, right? Right. But you. But. But, uh, as I said, you know, in the in the it, when it comes to reading, when it comes to playing well with a click, when it comes to following a conductor, when it comes to blending, when it comes to being able to play dynamics, uh, on a dime. When it comes to you know the all of the fine things that that are part and parcel of 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 years and years of working with conductors and being in ensembles and playing actual music with people right. in that environment, you can't just do that. You yes. have to. And so my suggestion is to do exactly the kind of thing that that Q did and that you're doing. Which is to, you know, get involved uh, with with tours, with uh, off Broadway shows, with subbing, with right. whatever you can do, so you can begin to. Because it's going to be strange yeah. if you've never done it before. There's a lot of things that you just don't know until you know them. Right. You know. Right. Anyway, <laughs> that's that's theater. Yeah. I want to get to some of the other stuff that you are involved in and have been involved with. And, and one thing that, that caught my eye just sort of looking at your social media and stuff was uh, the shows you've been doing with Paul Schaefer. These, uh, oh, yes, 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 yes. So this is like a pop symphony show that he's kind well, of... Well, that's one thing. Yeah, I did, uh, I, I start, I've known him for years through um, Hiram. And so to, we did a gig or two together with, with where he was playing with us. And then... Um, I wound up doing some gigs with him, and then when he left the show, uh, well, when the show and when the show ended, the Letterman show, he took the world's most dangerous band out on tour. Mm-hmm. Anton was with Joe Bonamassa, so there were I, I think uh, he could do a couple of gigs. I did some gigs, and Will Calhoun did some gigs. Oh wow, cool! And the, so it was the, the three of us, and then. Um, I did a couple of other kinds of things with Paul. I, I did, uh, what do you call it? Um, Only Murders in the Building. In, oh, really? Yeah, I did something something for him there. And I did uh, a couple of live things, Lincoln Center things. And uh, actually did uh, played on uh, David Letterman's sh- sh- new show, Theme. Oh, right. 
and they put it out and there were no drums. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they left the drums off altogether. It was kind of <laughs> the wackiest decision, but whatever. Uh, and, and Paul told me, no, they were using the drums in some episodes, but I, I never heard of it. But anyway, Paul put together a symphony show and, um, he always wanted to do this and to sort of be the featured guy in front of a symphony and do, you know, things that involved where you hear on some great rock and roll uh, or R&B type things. You hear symphonies and it's cool. Yeah. And uh, so he put that together and brought me in and Valerie Simpson from Ashford and Simpson is, is a featured singer with him. And uh uh, there's a couple of the rhythm section players and a singer or two that he brings and uh, and then we do it with different symphonies and so far it's been great you know so, so the angle of the show is is rock and pop uh, material that yeah. the original recordings featured a symphony or strings yes, at least exactly right yeah How cool. exactly right and they and they are reorchestrated a lot or sure. and occasionally they're 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 things that he wants to do where you know symphony might there might have been just strings and so it's it's fleshed out with a larger group but you know Barry White had all those yeah. you know love unlimited orchestra you know <laughs> uh, there were there were a bunch of things out there and then then he really loves to play and he sings and yeah, and he's Schaefer, extremely entertaining. It, it seems like such a fun show and such a, co- a fun concept because Schaefer just like over over the decades, it, it he's he's just such a fan of music. He's just such yeah. a fan and such a giddy appreciator of just like pop music, not just pop totally. music, like all, all kinds. kinds. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, he's a he's a musicologist, really. Yeah. He is, so I mean, officially, yeah. What like what does this show consist of? How did Paul Schaefer narrow down the the universe of everything he loves? <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole lot of different rock and roll. Uh, rock and roll and R&B. And then, you know, Valerie Simpson will do, um, you know, some of her songs that she wrote, uh, You're All I Need to Get By and uh, Ain't No Mountain and things like that. It's so that's a lot of fun that 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 show. And I hope it I hope more of it happens. Yeah. Yeah. It seems cool. That's that's a good one. Talk about the um, the demands of playing drum set with a symphony orchestra? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, very spe- like, 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 uh, like shows, um, you have to be able to... So uh, right now I'm in Wilmington, Delaware. I'm doing a symphony gig with this guy named Brian Stokes Mitchell. He's a great singer, uh, leading man on Broadway, uh, but soulful. Uh, kind of has a soulful dimension to him. Uh, it's an orchestra. There's a conductor. There's a there's an MD who's a music director, right? Right. He's playing piano, and there I am, and there is Stokes in the front. So uh, I've learned to to to. There are times when I have to lead the conductor, and then there are times where the conductor is leading to bring in the orchestra, and there are times where I'm getting my cues from the singer. And so it is, um, I, I've learned to look in a, in a direction where I can see everybody peripherally. Right. I can see the piano, I can see the conductor, and I can see the, the artist. And I'm taking all of them in uh, a lot. And I try and position my drums in a, sort of usually an unorthodox way. 
where I'm actually uh, facing uh, uh, sort of a stage right. Mm-hmm. Oh, the facing the piano. The piano's facing me. Right. So, so my music stand, which is above my hi hat. As I'm looking at the music, I'm seeing the conductor's face above the stand. Mm-hmm. And everywhere I do orchestra gigs, that's how I position myself. Um, so a lot of it is just... Then, then there's also the dynamics thing, right? So you're playing with an orchestra. They're not interested in hearing, you know, bombast. <laughs> right. Now, sometimes they have to hear bombast because there's, you know, there's... there's, there's acts that feature you know uh they'll, they'll bring the orchestra in and they're playing yeah. and the drummer will be baffled you know be surrounded in plexi right everything is surrounded and usually there's some plexi involved i i don't have it in front of me i tell them i can't have plexi in front of me because i cannot have that sound coming back at me yeah it's, I hate it's it. the most horrible thing yeah but, you know, I understand that to the left and behind and all that, these people, you know, it's a louder instrument that they want to hear. Plus, right. I have a monitor that's, that's giving me more sound. And, you know, inevitably, you're going to get people around you who are pissed off. The idea, though, is, is, is the same thing with, with shows. There are times when you have to play at a softer volume but you have to play with the same intensity and intent. Yeah. You have to be, it has to be convincing. It, the time has to be what it has to be. Um, you're looking for what feels great and feels authentic, but your volume will often be reduced. Yeah. That's such a great point and a great idea because I think that skill, um, exists in a lot of uh, genres of music and a lot of types of ensembles um mm-hmm. and i i'm i'm most used to it in a big band um mm-hmm. you know like a big 18 piece and i i learned yeah. i learned in college that like if if you want to make a, an 18 piece big band fucking listen to you play quiet there you go <laughs> like just there you go just disappear and all 18 of them will be like whoa what's where where is he where okay got him right so that that skill i would imagine is is even more heightened with uh 50 or an 60 orchestra. yeah an orchestra yeah yeah because they're used to also in a general sense the default is that a percussionist from the orchestra when there's a drum set part will be playing the drum set mm-hmm. that's tradition to bring an outside guy in, which which they do when I'm, uh, for instance, when I'm playing uh, on a movie or a television session with with strings or with an orchestra, uh, or a, a, with the New York Pops, for instance, when I when I'm lucky enough to to be there, I'm a guest guy. I don't belong to the section. My deal with them is that I'm not going to move back and forth from the section. Um. It's been a long time since I've done any of that, and I'll play some snare drum parts. Mm-hmm. But um, so, but you, you know, as you say, you have to, you have to be able to play quietly and play in, 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 intensely. Yeah, and you're right that you that it happens. Listen, man, if you look at at at, at James Brown, 
you know, videos. Yeah. Those guys aren't slamming, you know, it's not, yeah. they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not playing like this. Yeah. They're, they're playing tight and often, I don't know about soft, but not necessarily loud. It's, it's the intensity with which they, 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 they play the drums. Yep. Yeah. It's the intense, the right? intensity and the intent almost yep. replaces the volume. Like it's not that you can't hear it. You can hear it That's just right. fine. I remember yes. seeing Bernard Purdy play a couple times and uh-huh. and I was struck by just like you said it's it's all he's not working hard at all like there's tons of sound tons of yes. groove coming off yeah. the drum set but hit, like his hands are just like they never <clears throat> they never uh you know rise above his neck really <laughs> Yes yeah and there's a point as we all know from, from playing the drums where it's actually diminished returns. Yes. There's a point when you hit you hit harder and less sound is coming out. Yeah. You have to draw the draw the sound out of the drum and you can get a whole lot of sound not playing heavy. So anyway, playing with orchestras involves that sensibility and also again, you know, you have well, there's usually going to be a singer. You have to be used to following singers and 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 listening to what they're trying to accomplish rhythmically that carries over into this. Right. Uh, if, if you're playing with a singer um, and there's a conductor, the conductor rules, you know? Yeah. Uh, conductor rules. So, yeah. you know, and the partnership in, in an environment like that, like playing a show, the partnership between drummer and conductor or, or drummer and MD. I mean, most shows just live and die by it. That's right. They have to. They have to trust. They have to trust you. Yeah. They have to know that you're there for them. On the other hand, you know, uh, the conductor of the pops says to me often, "Look, I want to be able to set it and forget it, mm-hmm. and I want you to be able to. I don't want to have to think about is this feeling good." So they're looking for strength and consistency with time and all of that. They're looking for that. Uh, on the rare occasion where I've worked with a conductor who's constantly trying to move me around, it's it's it doesn't end well. <laughs> I, I mean, musically I've had, or otherwise, <laughs> musically, yeah, I, I've had two situations like that, and and maybe only two in all of the years that I've been doing it, where the, where the nervous systems just aren't compatible, and and there's like. A, bar to bar there can be a change of what what he might want what he might feel right and 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 like any groove right the 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 groove you you hear this definition a groove is an agreement yeah yeah right so now what what what's happening in in those circumstances somebody's saying i don't agree with you right move (laughs) i don't agree with you again Move. Okay, so now he does have the right to do that, but at, at, at a certain point, it's just going to feel fucking horrible. Right. It's going to feel horrible to everybody, you know. So, but under, uh, other than that, uh, I think what they're looking for is somebody who's responsive, who can, you know, be directed, and uh, in the event that there is no click, and there is, there are certainly. All orchestral situations, I shouldn't say that. Uh, West Side Story, we use the click most of the time. but um, And a lot of movie and television work, there's click. Yeah. But uh, but uh, 
in a lot of orchestral situations live, there wouldn't be, right? Right. So, uh, you know, in those cases, uh, they're looking for consistency, but they're also looking for somebody who's sensitive enough and pliable enough to, you know, to be adjusted. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like the, I mean, ultimately, like you said, you know, the, the conductor or the MD runs the show, but it seems like the drummer and the drums are their primary tool for manipulating whatever has to happen. Um, 100%. Uh, There's an analogy I heard a long time ago that a show is like Amtrak. (laughs) You, You have the conductor and you have the engineer. Yeah. And, 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 you know, again, this, this same conductor, Steve Reinecke, that I mentioned before, was a, a number of uh, different pops orchestras, including the New York Pops. And he says, uh, the concert master in a pops orchestra, your concert master in a, in, a, in, a, in a regular symphony would be the first violinist. Right. And that first violinist is the translator uh, for a lot of the orchestra in terms of you know, how he or she is going to bow and you're, and, you know, telling them what to do. And, and they're, they're sort of indicating time and phrasing and all of those things. And he'll say that in a pops orchestra, the concert master is the drummer. Mm. It makes sense. Yeah. That makes total sense. Um, a, a liaison, a translator between that's right. The, you know, what the conductor needs to happen and the rest of the group. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Huge, yeah. huge trust. Huge trust. Huge responsibility. Big, big time. Yes, big time. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's. Uh, yeah, that, and I love that stuff. I'm I'm going out to L.A. in a, a week to do a movie. Uh, everybody keeps describing it as a huge project. I'm not allowed to know what it is. It's there's a non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> Cool. That, that, that everybody who's hiring me is saying no, or, and giving me information. They've signed uh, this non non disclosure. But you know, when I'm there, I know it's going to be all week, and they're going to be. Uh, uh, this is my favorite work to do of everything because it, it combines uh, all of those things, and I do love being in the recording studio, and I I, I love it. Yeah, more than anything, I think. I do I, I do recording at home. I do records mostly at home for other people. You know. Uh, Andy Snitzer, the great Andy Snitzer, great saxophone player. I've mm-hmm. been I played on his records. We're about to do something, bass player David Fink. But uh, I like recording with people more yeah. live. You know, it's it's a much more fun. And and the TV or movie thing is is uh, has been enjoyable for me. I do this show, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I saw that on on your IG, and it, like it, it, a, you recorded that at Power Station, and it looks like you spent yeah, a lot we, of time. Yeah, we do that. That's that's a, that's I've done a number of seasons, still doing one, and I, and this next season, <clears throat> which we're doing now, which will be shown next, I also do on camera for that. Uh, so the band, uh, there's a there's a. I'm not really allowed to talk about it, but there's a we we. We wind up uh, often going on camera and miming what we've recorded in the studio. Right. Which is something I also did for West Side Story, the Spielberg thing. I was in the movie in one scene, you know. If you blinked, you missed it. But it was the dance at the gym, and the band is there. And we were miming what we had played in in the studio. Right. uh, So I I like doing that. That's fine. I'd rather do that with what I had recorded than what somebody else. (laughs) 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 But Um. you know, those are fun, and when they happen, 
So this then, this mystery gig yeah. in L.A. is like you have yeah. no idea what it is, but it's with this conductor that you work. with. I have an idea what it is. It's not the the the, the guy who hired me is a music producer uh, who I work with also on Maisel, and I know he is a very famous film uh, director's guy. But if I mention it, I, I'd be you know, I, I, technically I don't know. I don't know. Right. Uh, I have an idea of what it is. But right. I, I, think, you know, I think you might be sniped through your hotel room window if you... Uh... <laughs> yeah, no, I'm gonna, or I'm just going to talk, talk out my you-know-what without, you know... Without, but the good news is, is, is just to be involved in the project. Very grateful for that. And yeah. that he wants me there and he's, you know, he's comfortable having me uh, do this thing with him. And I, you know, that, you know... So that will happen in a couple of weeks... Uh, twenty-two songs, I'm told, Man. which are a lot of songs. Yeah, and you know it's going to be. You don't get to look at them until you get there. Like you don't That's get to right. do any homework. No, I don't. I don't think I will. Man, I think you'll be all right. I think you'll be. Fine. I'm not. I'm okay. <laughs> I, 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 I like working with this guy. He's a, we have a. You know, he's he's great. Cool. Cool. So anyway, yeah, that that happens in a week, and then I've been working with this band called the royal scam and it's a, a steely dan tribute band oh that's great i love something those. i never thought i would do before and i and then i sort of looked at who was doing it and there's some of my friends you know lou marini and dan levine and bob Mann and these great musicians and i just thought you know what i'm gonna delve deeply into this i'd done this once before with a band called fab foe hmm. which is a great uh Beatles tribute band with Will Lee and Jimmy Vivino and whatever, and, that, and Rich Pagano, the great Rich Pagano, uh, was having a health issue, so I did a season of concerts with them. Oh, cool. And it was a great experience. So that was with the Beatles. I learned like, I don't know, 100, 150 Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> to yeah. do you know, 10 different concerts. Now, I, I'm doing this, this, these gigs with this, uh, uh, this band, Royal Scan. They're, they do theaters, and, and, and uh, you know, it's like a, it's the thing. Yeah. So that's that, and then there's like four other bands that I'm that I'm working with. I had to, I looked at my calendar in honor of you <laughs> and wanting to be able to say something. So I, you know, all all different bands. Some are mostly rock, R and B, but there's stuff that delves into jazz. Not not really straight ahead. Not much straight ahead. But when you, we talk about the creative part of my existence. This is what that is. The icing. Yeah, this is like the beautiful, uh, you know. So there's cool. a, uh, look at this. It's a t four or five bands, and they're they're all playing locally, right, in New York, right. And I have those gigs on my on my calendar over the next uh, couple of months. Then I I go out with Manhattan Transfer. I I, I sub on that band sometimes. Right. I interviewed um uh, another drummer who plays with them. Um, Ross. Yes, Ross Peterson. Yeah, yeah, terrific drummer. Yeah, what a what a ninja he is. Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> man, to to watch him play like his his whole like approach to the set is is opposite from mine because like everything is really low and really flat, and he's just yes. really tight and just very contained. Oh man, it's yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a, it's an interesting. Uh, uh, 
He's great. God, he's, he's so good. I mean, I, I'm six foot five, so that approach is just, oh, wow. it's, it's not an option for me. <laughs> no, 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 um, no. Now, are you one of those guys, though? I, this, is, this is fascinating to me where I sit low. I'm significantly shorter than you. Mm-hmm. And I'm five, five, nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sit kind of low, so the drums are... But I've seen guys like, and I'm sure you. I don't know if you're one of them. I go into the re- rehearsal rehearsal room, and I and the, and the guy's chair is like up here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sit really freaking high, and then and and almost like this with the drums, like bending down. Right. So I I do set my stool pretty high. Um, I I need to have my hips like well above my knees. Um, Interesting. And because of that. Uh, like a lot of floor tom legs are not tall enough for me. A lot of snare stands are not tall wow. enough for me. So I gotta, I gotta, you know, really find the shit that works. Um, I used to sit a little bit lower, uh, and I used to set my drums a little lower. I mean, years ago, but in in the last couple years, I've done some work with Dave Elitch and and revamped my physical approach, uh, revamped the way I sit, not just in terms of um, the height the stool is at, but um, like really being conscious of not like even if my even if my spine was straight before uh-huh. I was pitched forward and I see. sometimes hunched forward but at least sort of pitched forward where my upper body was like at an angle leaning forward and Elitch worked with me to actually you know le- it felt like leaning way back but the result of it is actually stacking your spine over your hips and stacking your head over your spine um, and when you first wow. do it, it feels like you're just leaning back way, like, like you're about yeah, to tip over backwards. I would imagine. Um, but it's been really, really helpful. I, I was having some, some back shit and I was having some hip shit. I understand. Um, so, so yeah, I, it, it's a long answer to your question because I love talking about this shit, but I, I do set my stool, you know, high and when, high. When, I, when a normal yeah. sized person sits on my stool, it's like, it's like a timpani stool or a, or a bar stool, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That sounds, that's interesting. Like I remember watching. When I think of the drummers who sort of sit straight and play, not many come to mind. Yeah. Like 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 Omar, I think. Mm-hmm. I, as I recall, Omar sort of sort of very vertical and and of course is a monster, right? Yes. And so he's a, a, but I always thought that was a, I sit with a I have a back to my stool. Uh-huh. So I I you know for you and, and, and your guy, that's probably like an enormous crutch. Yes. Because <laughs> you know, you know, I'm, I'm leaning back, but that does take pressure off uh, stool backs, seat backs. Right. I mean, when you think about it, almost every chair and every sofa we sit in has a back to it. Yeah. The idea that when we play, we, don't, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't have a back. Well, this is kind of a we've gone off on a ramp here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but we're on a long exit ramp. But I, but the idea that you remove the back in that circumstance, though, I guess that's tradition with piano stools and all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Elitch's thing is is just all about um, you know how how the human body is really designed to move and and how um, you know early humans didn't need. A, a back. They didn't have chairs. They sat on the ground and, you know, they sat erect. They sat upright. They, you know, yeah. um, 
and it's it's you know modern um, modern convenience and modern comfort that has caused us to slouch and to lean forward and to round our shoulders yes. and all this. Sure. Um, and yeah, I've I've just noticed a huge difference in uh, strength, stamina, uh, you know, pain, stiffness, all that. Um, That's great. I've got a long way to go, but um, yeah. I used to have I used to have uh, back issues also. And did the chair back. back alleviate them? The chair back really helped, but what what really helps uh, also is to get on the roller, you know, the oh, little. Yeah. And if I do that even twice a week for a few minutes, yeah, I'm good. But I I had such serious back problems that I I went to see uh, a guy who's no longer with us, but he wrote. He wrote a bunch of books on back pain mm-hmm. called Dr. Sarno, I think, Philip Sarno. There's so much simple shit you can do to look out for yourself. I, I go to a, a chiropractor, sort of multidisciplinary witch doctor guy um, once a month or so. And a, a few months ago, he was like, you know, once once a day, like in the middle of the day, in the afternoon, just like lie down for five or ten minutes. Like you, it's not taking a nap. It's like give your spine a break. Mm. You know, and just let let those uh, discs fill back up with fluid, and yeah, you know, makes I, sense. and he said, you know, you can lay on your bed and let your head hang off the edge of the mattress, so that it's like it's still supported, but it's like hanging off there, so your you know your neck doesn't have to contend with gravity for five minutes. Um, it makes a huge difference, like really. Oh, I, I, I bet. There's a, a, a stool I discovered also made by a company called Ahead. Yeah. And and it's got a, uh, from this front, it's a, a, they make one that's round, but they, they make one that's also more of a motorcycle seat. But the, the fascinating thing of that, I should send you a link to this. It's the best stool I've ever owned. And I've gone through a lot of them. It's got a, uh, from front to back, a, a, a cutout that's about, an inch and a half, two inches wide. Right, the split seat. Yeah, it's all about the spine. Yep. And it's called Spine X or something like that. This, this, this It's a drum throne. Yeah, I have a similar one by uh, a company called Motion Pro. Um, oh, yeah. And, and yeah, that it, it, like the, the idea is for um, your, your spine to just be able to float sort of between those two points of pressure. Um, but with the Motion Pro, it's actually like it's sort of uh, the two halves of the throne are spring mounted. Oh, um, wow. And it's not bouncy. It's not, you know, like you're sitting on a springy mattress or something. They're super stiff springs and they just flex a little bit and allow uh-huh. your, your hips to kind of move. Do you the, like it? I love it. I love it. This is what this was the original concept for Rock and Sock. Right, right. Do you remember that? Yeah, for sure. It had springs, and then they said, "Fuck it, no, this is <laughs> you know we're not selling these right. or whatever." But they still got those they, hydraulic re- things. Yeah, that's yeah. They still have the hydraulic. Well, the hydraulic thing, if, if we're talking about the lever that right that yeah. just can bring you up and down, and that's that's more or less of a convenience. You, you yeah. Know. Right. Right. But the, the anyway, man, I, I, most conversations I'm having these days are sort of devolving into like, what's wrong with your body? <laughs> yeah, well, like, there's a certain age. I don't think you're at it where that that ta- that that takes a that takes over. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm 42 and it's happening. It's, uh, well, it's you happening know. for sure. And I'm sure it's, yeah, it's yeah. not going to get better. <laughs> yeah, you just keep active and 
yeah and all of that it's good what you're doing yeah for your for your back well you are certainly keeping active over there man you got a full plate uh and i, I wish you the, the best of luck with it it was great talking to you I, I, thanks zach it was great talking to you too i really appreciate it there you go that's clint again i hope you dug that i think he's a great example of just doing the job gig after gig year after year Sometimes it's creative, sometimes there's some glory in it, sometimes not, but there's really something to be said for being able to understand what a given job is and just showing up and killing it every time. Next week, Matt Kraus will be talking with the great Gary Husband. I'm sure there'll be a lot to get into there, so hope you check that out. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.